thank you. Thank you for your amazing grace that while we were yet sinners, you came to die for us. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, as we look to the book of Nehemiah, written some 24, 2500 years ago, Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes to how the realities that took place so many years ago are still incredibly relevant to our lives today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Back a few weeks ago, I was looking through some of the curriculum that we're using in one of our new Sunday morning classes. It was the class, Living as God's People. And as I was looking through this curriculum, I, I came across an analogy that I really liked. It was very thought-provoking, and it went something like this. It talked about how in farming there is what is called a demonstration plot, where a, a farming company or a research firm will create this little tract of land that is used to demonstrate some new product or some seed or, or, or some new procedure in farming. And it's a demonstration plot. So what they want to do is to demonstrate that this new seed or this new product or this new procedure is going to be effective. And they want to see um, farmers like what they're doing there and then adopt it in their own farming practices. That's, that's the usage of a demonstration plot. Now, the analogy is that the church is essentially God's demonstration plot in this world. That God wants to work in and through the church in a way to demonstrate to the surrounding world what it looks like when God rules in people's lives. God wants us to be his hands and his feet in this world. He wants to radiate his glory through us. He wants us to live out the gospel in such a way as individuals and as a community that when people see us, they want to experience that same life available through Christ that they are seeing in us. That's the calling. It's a very high calling, a bit of an intimidating calling. But that's the privilege that we have to represent God in this world. Now, the reality, though, is that we aren't always the best representatives. I mean, we're called to be a demonstration plot, but sometimes we demonstrate brokenness rather than wholeness and love and the gospel. I think about how in churches oftentimes there is division. You see division in various denominations. You see it in terms of church splits. You see it in terms of unforgiveness between individuals. I think of hypocrisy that, that does characterize Christians at times. Even, even church leaders at times have significant moral failures. I think, too, of how the divorce rate among Christians it is no different than it is for the rest of the world. I think about the materialism in church. I think about how oftentimes, um, even though we go through the motions of church activities, people in churches oftentimes aren't experiencing general, genuine spiritual transformation. And so the, the end result is that even though we are called to, to look like Christ, in reality, we look an awfully lot like the rest of the surrounding world. And we also face challenges in our culture. Statistics say that somewhere between 50 and 60% of our American society is unwilling to set foot in a church, even if the church has tremendous programs and tremendous other things they are offering. Now, I think this percentage is probably on the higher end of that spectrum. On the, on the east and west coast, it's probably a little bit lower here in the Midwest. But I think even still, it, it's troubling when you look at the trends of church involvement and people wanting to associate with Christ. You look generally, generationally. If you look at all the generations who are still alive in America, with each passing generation, the level of church involvement drops significantly. 
from the World War II generation down to the baby boomers, down to the Generation X, down to the millennials. Each generation step creates fewer and fewer people who are interested in being involved in church. And I think many of us know from personal experience that being a Christian who's devoted to following Christ in our culture really is not a very popular thing. So we have a lot of bad news in terms of the challenges that we face of representing God in this world. But today I want to offer us hope. Because there are good reasons to have hope in the midst of challenges that we face in this world. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah 1. We're beginning a new series today on the book of Nehemiah. Now, if you don't know where Nehemiah is, you can use your table of contents. Or if you find the book of Psalms, which is right in the middle of the Bible, flip a little bit earlier than that. Flip, I mean, Psalms, then Job, then Esther. Then you get to Nehemiah um, if you're going backwards in the Bible. Uh, but we're reading a series that is called Rebuild. And what it's about is about rebuilding things that are broken. Whether it's broken churches or broken lives, or a broken world, or in Nehemiah's case, broken walls. And Nehemiah has a lot to teach us about building. Even if you aren't rebuilding something that, that was broken, we can still learn a lot about building in general, whether it's building a healthy church, or building a healthy organization in which we uh, work or, or, or serve, building a healthy workplace, building a healthy home. Nehemiah is a top-notch leader. I mean, you think of top-notch leaders in, in history. I mean, whether it's people like Abraham Lincoln or Nelson Mandela or Harry Truman or people like that, Nehemiah was that type of leader. I mean, a top-notch leader that has things to teach us regardless of where we are in life. Now, you may be hearing this name Nehemiah and wondering, who in the world is Nehemiah? What, what's this all about? What relevance does this have to our lives today? Well, I think it's important that we understand some of the background and some of the history uh, for Nehemiah. Because if we don't understand the background, we're going to miss out on the richness of who he was and what he was doing. You think about it, if you go to Philadelphia and visit the Liberty Bell there, but you don't have any understanding of what took place during the Revolutionary War, odds are good the Liberty Bell is going to be limited in significance to you. Or if you say go to Gettysburg, but you don't know anything at all about the American uh, Civil War, odds are good that, that Gettysburg is going to be limited in terms of its significance to you at that point. Or even if you go to Lambeau Field, I know today it's going to be awfully cold there. It's known as the frozen tundra. I think today it's going to live up to that billing. Um, may not be Ice Bowl um, uh, comparisons. Or I'm sure it'll be compared to the Ice Bowl. Don't know if it'll be that bad or not, but... If you went to Lambeau Field on a nice balmy day um, and took a tour of the stadium and didn't know anything of that background behind the Green Bay Packers or Lambeau Field, I have a feeling that even though you learned some stuff on the tour, your feeling of the significance of, and appreciation of what you're seeing there at Lambeau Field would not be nearly as deep as if you knew a lot of the history of the frozen tundra and of the ice bowl and of Lombardi and of, of all the history there with the Green Bay Packers. History and the background makes a big difference in terms of the richness of our understanding and appreciation of something. And I think it's the exact same with Nehemiah. And if you are like me, if you're like a lot of Christians, when you hear about things from the Old Testament or you read some story from back then, it's sometimes like, okay, where does this really fit into the picture? I think we hear these stories from Old Testament times 
And it's kind of like they're floating around in a vacuum. And we aren't quite sure how does this event relate to that one and how does that relate to this thing over here. And I think that's a very common feeling. So you may be wondering, okay, where does Nehemiah fit in the big picture here? Well, let me give you a picture of where Nehemiah does fit in terms of a timeline down really for, for a couple thousand years we're going to look at here. Just kind of a quick synopsis of the Old Testament to give us a foundation on which to build for this series. I'm going to start off here. 2000 AD, you had Abraham. Abraham was called by God and given a promise by God that his descendants are going to become a great nation. Abraham became the father, the patriarch of the Jewish nation. And Abraham had a grandson named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And for hundreds of years, these tribes were growing. Um, They were growing. And then about a thousand years later came uh, King David. Now during that time, uh, God had been setting apart Israel for himself, for his own glory, to be his demonstration, his representative in this world. Now with King David and King Saul and King Solomon around 1000 BC, that was when Israel really gained a lot more prominence and power and prosperity. They began to expand significantly in terms of their geographical size. Uh, They began to grow. David was called a man after God's own heart. And it was at that time that Jerusalem became the capital of Israel. Uh, Jerusalem uh, was a city there. It wasn't just merely a city. It was seen as, as the very presence of God in this world, the place where God's presence was most real. It was called to, Jerusalem was called to demonstrate God's glory to the surrounding world. Now, David had a, a son named Solomon. Solomon became king after David did. Solomon, he was a very wealthy man, a very wise man. But he definitely had some major faults as well. One of his major faults was that he allowed Israel to begin to worship false gods, idols. And actually Solomon himself began to worship these false gods as well. And God warned Solomon saying, Solomon, you can't do this. You can't do it. Let me read you a passage out of 1 Kings chapter 11, which kind of demonstrates what was going on there with Solomon and what would occur afterwards. 1 Kings 11 verse 9 says the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forget, forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. So this is what God said. Solomon, since you are not following me, there are going to be some consequences here. I want to wake up my people. And so I'm going to rip the kingdom away from you. And in fact, we see that in the very next generation, within just a few years after, um, after Solomon had died, Israel split into two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom, consisting of ten tribes, um, was called Israel. The southern kingdom, consisting of two of the original twelve tribes, was called Judah. They were split. Jerusalem was down on the side of Judah. And, and what happened here was that the glory of God that was supposed to be manifested through Israel began to be obscured. Because now rather than unity, the, the people of God began to fight against each other. 
And they continue to follow other gods. If you read the accounts of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you will see these accounts of, of the kings of Israel and Judah and how, you know what, they really weren't helping people follow God very well. I mean, you had the kings of Israel definitely had the biggest struggle with this. If you look at the progression in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles for the northern kingdom of Israel, it went something like this. It went evil king, followed by evil king, followed by evil king, followed by evil king. The southern kingdom of Judah was a little bit better. They had evil king, followed by good king, followed by evil king, followed by halfway decent king. I mean, it was kind of like that. So God was sending prophets to the nation of Israel and of Judah uh, over and over and over, prophet after prophet after prophet, warning them, you need to repent and turn back to me. If you look at the latter part of the Old Testament and see all those funny names, that you're like, where do they get those names and how in the world do I pronounce names like Habakkuk and Haggai and Malachi and Zephaniah and what do those things mean? Those are the names of prophets whom God sent to, to Israel and to Judah to call these nations back to himself, but they refused to listen. They brought messages of warning that if they do not turn back to God, there will be very negative consequences because God wants to wake them up to turn them back to himself. And we see the consequences begin in 722 B.C. when Assyria, the, the major world empire there, came and attacked and overthrew Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, the nation of Judah fared a little bit better because they had some kings who were trying to lead the nation of Judah back to God. But you fast forward a few years to 587 B.C. in Babylon. The next world empire came and attacked and overthrew Judah. Let me read from Second Chronicles chapter 36, beginning in verse 15, the account of what took place when Babylon came and overthrew Judah. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them, meaning those in Judah, through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed them all over to Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the Babylonians. He carried them to Babylon, or he carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant to escape from the sword. And they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So we see here that the Babylonians came. And this nation that once was, was intended to represent the glory of God here on this earth, this nation was overthrown. Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. I mean, the temple was destroyed. The walls around Jerusalem were completely broken down. Many people were killed. Those who weren't killed were, were shipped off back into Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq. And they were scattered throughout the cities. They were, they were enslaved. And so the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah ceased to exist at that point. Now fast forward a few more years to, um, to 539 B.C. 
And we see the Persian Empire came over through the Babylonians. This is a process that we see over and over and over in that era, where you see one empire grow, it overthrows the previous empire, then another empire comes. So the, the uh, Babylonian Empire overthrew the Assyrians, the Persians overthrew the Babylonians. If you fast forward a little bit further in history, you see that the Macedonian Empire, led by Alexander the Great, overthrew the Persians. And then you have the Roman Empire overthrowing the Macedonian Empire. And the Roman Empire is the world into which Jesus was born. That was the world back then. So the Persian Empire overthrew the Babylonians. And the Persian Empire was fairly gracious in the way they governed their people. They allowed people to return to their homeland. So at that point, some Jews returned to Jerusalem and to Judah and to Israel. Not many, but some did. And then we see that, they all, that the Persian Empire also allowed the Jews to rebuild the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. It took many years, but in 516 B.C., the temple in Jerusalem was completed. Now, it was a mere shadow of the original temple. Much smaller, much less glorious, but it was a temple nonetheless. But the people of Jerusalem still were not really following God wholeheartedly. So we sent to Jerusalem a man named Ezra. We read about him. There's a book named after him just before Nehemiah. Ezra came to reform Jerusalem's religious practices. He came in 458 B.C. And he is actually a contemporary of Nehemiah. He and Nehemiah were there um, at the same time. He was actually there a little bit earlier, but they, they, they crossed paths a lot during that time. Um, even while Ezra was there beginning to reform the religious practices of Jerusalem, all was not well because the walls of Jerusalem were still broken down. There was still chaos there. And so in 445 B.C., about 440, 445 years before the time of Christ, Nehemiah went to Jerusalem specifically to help rebuild the walls and restore order in that city. And so that's where we're picking up today. Uh, that's a little bit of the background, the history here. And we're picking up on the story of Nehemiah, which is such a rich story of, of what took place about 2,500 years ago. And I think there's a lot that we can learn today. Now, you may still be wondering, okay, who is this Nehemiah? We've heard about him. Who is he? Well, we're going to see a lot about him throughout the series, but just, just to start, we see in Nehemiah 1.11, he says, I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, you may be wondering, what's a cupbearer? Well, a cupbearer is, is really a prestigious, very important role. It's someone who would taste all of the king's food before the king eats it and drink uh, some uh, of any wine or any other drink that the king would be drinking in order to make sure that the food in that drink was not poisoned. So if it was poison, then the cupbearer would show the ill effects first, then the king would not drink it or eat it, so the king would be spared. And this was the role of Nehemiah. We'll see next week why this was such an important role. But as we come to the book of Nehemiah now, we are going to see that, um, that, that really this is a memoir from Nehemiah or maybe a journal of his, that he wrote down, giving an account of what took place in his years in Jerusalem. So I'm going to read Nehemiah 1, beginning with verses 1 through 4. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. 
For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So we see here at the beginning that, that Nehemiah is describing his circumstances. I'm just going to cover a couple details here just to set it up. First of all, we see that Nehemiah, he says it was in the 20th year. That's referring to the 20th year of, of the Persian king Artaxerxes, the 20th year of his rule. And he says that he was in the citadel of Susa. That was the main fortress in which the king lived. And so, so, so Nehemiah also lived there. And he said that some men, including his brother, came back from Judah. Now, we don't know if these men lived in Judah and were just coming to visit, or if they just been on a visit over in Judah in Jerusalem and are coming back to where they live. We don't know exactly where these men lived, but when they came back from visiting over there, Nehemiah had a question for them. He wanted to know, okay, how are the people doing there? How, how's the city of Jerusalem doing? And the news that they shared was very uh, discouraging, very disgraceful. They shared that the people are struggling and that the walls of the city are still broken down. Now, to us here in the 21st century America, the walls of a city, we may wonder, okay, what's the big deal here? I don't think any of us live in cities that have walls around the city. I mean, maybe you're from somewhere I don't know of, but I know that the cities around here don't have walls with gates that close at night. But we have to understand that back in that culture, having a wall around your city was incredibly important for the safety of those in the city. And in many senses, the walls of the city back then were as important, if not more important, than that city's army was in terms of protect, protecting the city. And the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down by the Babylonians, and they were still broken down at this point over 100 years later. And this was a significant disgrace and shame to the people, not to mention um, causing a lot of anxiety. I mean, think about it. Think about what it would be like to live in a house without walls. Think about what it would be like, for instance, to live in a picnic shelter, um, one of those without any walls. If that was your house, I don't think you'd be very happy with it, especially coming from houses that any of us live in today, because it doesn't have walls or a door on it. And so what that means is weather can just blow through there whenever it wants to. I mean, if you lived in that today, you'd be very, very cold. And I mean, think about it. If you leave, there's no way to really lock up and, and protect your house because there aren't walls or doors on it. At night, I think you'd feel especially vulnerable because, you know what? If you're asleep, anyone can just waltz right in and take whatever they want, and no one can stop them. Animals can come in and eat your food. We, I think in this context, we probably like our walls and our doors in our house. I think of yesterday... Uh, Micaiah, our son, he still kind of likes Sound of Music, but he's kind of moved on now. And yesterday he was watching an episode of Little House on the Prairie. It was actually the pilot episode when the family is out in Kansas building their log cabin. And for a while, the only door they had in their log cabin was a blanket hanging up there. And they were all concerned about wolves coming. Not, I didn't hear any mention about wolves coming into the house but they were worried about wolves coming to attack their animals. And so they were, they were building this barn and building these fences. And all along I'm thinking, I would not be very comfortable living in that house with only a blanket as the door. I think I would, I'd want to get a nice solid wooden door up there as soon as I could. I mean, it would be very, I'd feel, feel very vulnerable if my house didn't have walls or didn't have doors. And that is exactly how the people of Jerusalem would have felt back then, living in a city without walls and without gates. It was incredibly disgraceful, too, to live in that sort of city. 
And when Nehemiah got this, this word that the walls were still broken down, he broke down and he wept. It said he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And when I see that response, and frankly, it amazes me. I'm like, why did Nehemiah get so emotional about this? Why did he break down so much? I mean, he is 800 miles from Jerusalem. Odds are good he's never visited that city. If he knows anyone there, it's not many people. He, he probably already knows that the walls have been broken down for a long time. Why at this moment is he so broken up about this? Well, I think it's an indication of God working in his heart. That God broke his heart for the same things that break God's heart. That God's heart was broken, in a sense, over the brokenness of his people. How they are scattered. How his glory is being obscured. And Nehemiah cared about God's people and God's glory. And this was what caused him to break down and to feel the disgrace that God's people felt back there in Jerusalem. And I think it raises an important point that we need to consider as well. And the point is this. What is there in this world that breaks our heart? When we look at the world around us, the brokenness all over the place, what really breaks our heart that we see? And the second important question is, are we moved to the point of action? Because in our world, I mean, we have access to all kinds of bad news all the time. I mean, via internet, via TV, there's a constant stream of bad news and heartache and challenges coming in from all different places around this world. And I think if we aren't careful, we, we may think, okay, that's not good. We may talk to others about, you know, it's so sad about what that hurricane did or about the revolt taking place over there or this death over here. But oftentimes we aren't actually moved to action. So what breaks our heart in this world and what moves us to action? Now we see in Nehemiah a man whose heart was broken over these broken walls and he was moved to action. You may ask, okay, how do we develop that similar heart of compassion, that similar heart that, that's broken to the point over broken things that we are moved to action as well? Well, I want to look at the rest of this passage, this prayer that Nehemiah prays. Um, I think it's a summary prayer, a summary of his prayers that he's been praying actually for several months at this point. Beginning in verse 5, he said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your heart be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are in the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer for the king. Now, I think in this prayer, there are several things that point to how we can grow in compassion and in action in terms of really making a difference for God in this world. 
And the first thing I see here from Nehemiah's prayer is the importance of having a right view of God. Now, Nehemiah, as he's looking at the circumstances back in Jerusalem, there really wasn't any sort of tangible evidence of God's love and his faithfulness there. I mean, the people were in disarray. Uh, many of them were still scattered in exile. The walls were still broken down. This temple, um, I mean, it wasn't all that glorious compared to the previous temple. There weren't a lot of tangible evidences of God's love and faithfulness here. Yet even still, Nehemiah remembered, God, you are loving. You are faithful to your promises. And I know that you are still at work here as well. For us too, when we face times of brokenness, times where things aren't going the way we want to, our natural tendency is probably to blame God or to say, God, where are you in this? But when you remember this perspective of Nehemiah, they recognize in God, I know that you are still at work here. I know that you are still faithful. I know that you are still loving. And I trust that you are going to do something here. That is a part of what our heart needs to be if we want to make a difference in this world for Christ. Now, secondly, we also need to have the right view of ourselves. Not just of God, but also of ourselves. Nehemiah prayed in here. He said, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have now obeyed you. And I think that's really instructive because our natural tendency when things are going wrong, like say if God came and said, okay, I'm going to bring judgment upon America because America is not following me. You're so wayward and so sinful. I think our natural tendency would be to point somewhere else and say, well, it's because of them. It's because of those corrupt politicians. Or it's because of these uh, liberal media or liberal churches out there that are not following the Word of God. Or it's because of the porn industry. Or it's because of, uh, of any number of other things. And we rarely turn the mirror back to ourselves and take responsibility for our own contributions in terms of sin. But I look at Nehemiah here. He didn't say, okay, it's a problem with them out there. He said it's an us problem. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. It's important that we have that mentality that any good thing that we have is simply by the grace of God, that we don't deserve good things. Because if we have an entitlement mentality or a mentality that elevates ourselves above others, it's going to be really hard for us to really have compassion when people are hurting. I mean, think about it. If you have kids, for instance, who are really honoring God and really making great decisions in life, and your mentality in that is, okay, I... They are great kids because I was a great parent. I parented them really well, and look at how they're growing up. If that is your mentality, that they are good kids because of what you have done as a parent, and not because, you know what, they're good kids, they're godly because of the grace of God, then your, your mentality is probably going to be when you see someone else who has a very wayward kid, your mentality is probably going to be like, well, they should have done what I was doing. They must not be very good parents. Because when we elevate ourselves and think that things are accomplished by our own effort rather than God's grace, we are naturally going to look down on others. I mean, think about it financially. If you're doing really well financially and your mentality is, okay, I'm doing well because I have worked hard and I have done the hard work that's necessary to earn these things, and you aren't saying, okay, I'm doing this or I'm well off financially because of the pure grace of God and the gifts that he has given me, if your mentality is one of entitlement and that you've earned this, you're going to really struggle to, to, to look compassionately upon those who are struggling financially. 
because you're going to think, well, they just need to work harder. They need to do what I did. And so we need this mentality that, that Nehemiah had saying, you know what? We all have, have contributed to the problems here. We are all broken people, yet God has given us the privilege of helping build people up through his grace. And finally here, we see that Nehemiah had a readiness to respond to God. And we need to have that same sort of readiness. We see this in the last verse, and we'll see it more next week. Uh, the last line of his prayer, he said, Give your servant, referring to himself, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He's talking about he has sensed that God is giving him a mission, and he has to go before the king to take that next step in the mission. He, he has a readiness to respond. His heart isn't just broken. He's saying, God, what do you want me to do about it? And that's an important thing for us to ask. I think two of the key questions for us, if we want to follow Christ and make a difference in this world, two key questions that we need to ask are, one, what is God saying to me? And secondly, what am I going to do about it? Many times we get that first question right. I mean, we're saying, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? We learn things in classes. We learn things in sermon. We learn things from reading the Bible. But we don't take that next step in asking, okay, what am I going to do about it? We, we accumulate more head knowledge, but we aren't actually applying it. And we need both sides of that. We need to say, God, what are you trying to teach me? And what am I going to do about it? Nehemiah, God broke his heart for what was taking place in Jerusalem. And he prayerfully formulated a plan about what he was going to do in response. And it's a pretty amazing thing to see it all play out, as we will see in future weeks. Now, in closing, I think something that we may all need to pray this week is, God, will you please break my heart for what breaks your heart? Break my heart for what breaks yours. As I look around the world, you know, there's a lot of brokenness. But what is something that you really want me to focus on that you want to work through me in to help redeem for the sake of Christ? I'm very thankful that we have a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who didn't just look at us and say, wow, they are a mess. They are broken. They are sinful. And that he didn't just say that and then sit back and say, well, that's too bad. Oh, I'm brokenhearted, but, you know, it's too hard to get off this throne. I'm thankful that he was willing to step off that heavenly throne, come down into the mess of this world, into the brokenness of this world, and die that we might have life. And my prayer is that we would be people who follow his example of being broken over a need and of being willing to respond to it. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the example of Jesus and his great love for us. We thank you for the example of Nehemiah, a man who was willing to step up to the plate when you called him to step out of his comfort zone, out of the comforts of the palace of the king, out of the comforts of eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine. You called him to go back to, to Jerusalem into a messy situation to bring about redemption. God, I pray that you will help each one of us to be broken over what breaks your heart and then to respond. Lord, now as we bring back to you a portion of what you've entrusted to us, our tithes and our offerings, we pray that you will use these offerings to spread your kingdom and your gospel around this world and to rebuild that which is broken and to do so for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.